thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. And if you've got questions for The Naked Scientist, now's the time to call us on 011-883-0702. If you couldn't get through last week and you're in Cape Town, have a quick go, fastest fingers first, 021-446-0567. If you're a little bit shy, you can also SMS your question and we'll have a look at which ones come through on the SMS line, 31702 or 31567. And of course, you're more than welcome to tweet us your questions for The Naked Scientist. Uh, you can either just tag my handle at Eusebius or one of the two handles of our radio stations at Cape Talk or at Radio 702. Already the calls are coming in uh, thick and fast. I haven't even had a chance to say how's it to Chris. How's it Chris? Fastest fingers first. I really like that. I'm going to steal that. (laughs) That's right. Are you more than welcome to do so? Are you well? well? Yep, very good. Yeah, you? I'm very well, yeah. Can I ask the first question? It just popped into my head. I've had politics in my head, you know, being a political animal. The scientific community is all about facts, verification, testing hypotheses. Um, are you guys scared about things like funding and the status of science in a, in a post-Trump universe? Well, people are also quite concerned because we're, we're facing the post-Brexit apocalypse That's because uh, Britain is trying to disentangle itself both politically, scientifically and in all other respects from many decades of legislation from Europe. And Europe does put money into UK science. Mm. Now, part of the argument is that uh, if you withdraw from the EU and you're not paying hundreds of millions of pounds to the EU every week, which is what Britain does, then there should be a case for some of that money coming back. Because we know... You know, even the politicians admit that for every pound you spend on science in the UK, you get probably about two pounds back into the economy because science makes technology and Mm. technology makes money. But yes, you're right. There are are going to be ripples spreading around the world from anything that any major country does. And so all eyes are on the US because there is this old saying that America sneezes and the rest of the world catches a cold because it's a huge economy. It's, It's the engine room of science, technology and a lot of other aspects of, of how the world works. Mm. And so if it becomes too disrupted, there is, there is a danger. But then on the other hand, there's a flip side. And a few years back when George W. Bush was president of the US, he, for reasons known best to him, put a moratorium on certain aspects of research that could be done with stem cells. Mm. Now, Britain was a massive beneficiary because all of these US scientists who couldn't get funding for <laughs> work that was going to change the world and they couldn't get jobs to do the work they wanted to do, Britain said, well, you can come here and do it. So we inherited an incredible legacy from that, and it, it helped us and put, put the UK way ahead. Mm. So actually, Donald Trump could be, you could look upon this as a charitable service to the rest of the world, that he's actually helping <laughs> the rest of the world yes. to catch up with America <laughs> by, by disabling and, and, and handicapping his own science and research. Mm. He's appointing a creationist. This is his latest thing. He's putting a creationist in charge of education, so that's good. That, that'll, that'll inject lots of reason and evidence-based practice. 
practice into <laughs> education, won't it? Absolutely. Um, but, but also, that the, sci- the science is going to be an interesting one to watch because, I mean, at the end of the day, Donald Trump made a lot of money and he did that not by being, uh, being thick and stupid. I mean, he, he obviously knows how to make money and yes. run businesses and, and therefore he, he's clearly got some brain cells and it should occur to him, if you do the financial side to this, that science does make money. So it's going to be an interesting term, I think. Absolutely. Chris, there's a lovely story here, which is exactly the kind of story that can get especially young kids um, and teenagers and those of us who were scarred for life with bad science teachers, enchanted with the world of science. And this is the story of a meteorite um, and its incredible journey over many billions of years. There's a paper in Science Advances this week, and it's by researchers in America, uh, Tom LePen, who's from the University of Houston. And this shows evidence of a large volcano going off on Mars 2.4 billion years ago. Now, how do we know that? Well, someone stumbled on a palm-sized pebble in Algeria, in Africa, of course, northwest Africa, about five years ago. They picked this up. It's not very big. It's pretty unassuming, this pebble. And uh, it was... Clearly, you can tell when you look at these things, if you know what you're looking for, that this is something extraterrestrial. This was a meteorite from Mars. This team in Houston got hold of two grams of this material, and what they were able to do is to feed it into a mass spectrometer, which can identify the different elements and chemicals that are in there. And by looking at the ratio of these different chemicals, because there, there are radioactive species in these rocks, and one radioactive form decays into another, you can look at the relative amounts of the two things, and this tells you how long the thing has been where it, where it is, when, when it was first made, for example. Mm. And when you do that, they've able, they're able to date this meteorite and say, well, it is 2.4 billion years old. And looking at the structure of it, you can see that it's lava, which has been bu- bubbled out of the surface of Mars, and it has then congealed, and it's congealed fairly fast. But how did it get from Mars to Earth? Well, there's also a story in that, because what happened is that about a million years ago, something slammed into the surface of Mars Mm. with enough energy to throw this piece of rock (laughs) off of the surface of Mars from this lava flow where it had laid for probably about 2.4 billion years, up into space... It then drifted around in space for a million years before it crossed the path of the Earth and our gravity captured it and it landed in northwest Africa. <laughs> wow. Now, how on Earth do we know it was in space for a million years? There's another really interesting bit of science written into the paper here. When things are drifting around in space, they are not protected from cosmic rays. There's this maelstrom of charged particles and radiation streaming out through space. When particles hit something like this pebble drifting around in space, they bombard the surface with with radiation, and this adds various exotic, rare forms of chemicals into the surface, Mm. which scientists can read, and the relative amounts of those tell you how long the thing must have been in space. So they were able to do that, and that brings brings really this story of this meteorite to a close. We, We now have a large gap closed in the geological history of Mars because we knew there was volcanism in the early days. We know that there may even have been a volcanic eruption on Mars within the last 100 years or so. But then there's this huge void of information. And here, slap bang in the middle of it, we've got this lovely meteorite story from 2.4 billion years ago. So the, a, a similar region of Mars was geologically active then as well. Stunning. Fascinating. Enough to make me regret taking history over science. O double one double eight three oh seven oh two. What are your questions for the naked scientist? And in Cape Town on O two one double four six oh five six seven. Seven oh two and Cape Talk. The naked scientist. Our very first question is gonna come from the Independent Republic of Howard Bay. Good morning, Brian. Uh good morning to you. And good morning to our lovely guest. 
Chris, I'm also smitten, but sadly, when the grandmother was handed out, when you were right at the top of the queue, I was right at the back. Um, <laughs> but, but I have a question, please. It's always fascinating me from early childhood days, and I'm 72 now. Why is it that when one looks, for example, at an ox wagon, you know, pulled by horses, the old Western movies, or today in the modern world, a car with spokes on it, why is it that whilst the vehicle or the wagon is going forward, on the screen, it appears as if the wheel is actually going backwards? Brilliant question. I've always wanted to know myself. Yeah. Yes, a lot of people see this, and it's, and it's very common in older movies, and what you're seeing is a stroboscopic effect. You can also see this on the roads as you're driving around at night. If you look at the cars going past you, sometimes the wheels do appear to be going the wrong way on the vehicle next to you. And it's the same phenomenon, but caused by two different things. In the case of the road, it is the street lamps above. In the case of the old movies, it is the camera. In both cases, though, the camera and the street lamps, they are taking a certain number of pictures or giving you a certain number of glimpses a second. So let me explain how this works. As the wheel starts to turn, if we imagine a chalk mark at the 12 o'clock position on the wheel, it goes round a bit. Well, let's say the camera takes a picture and then it takes another picture. Well, if the wheel's going only very slowly, then the camera will see the chalk mark go from, say, 12 o'clock to 1 o'clock and it's obvious the wheel has gone forward. But now, let's imagine that the wheel speeds up a bit so that instead of going from 12 o'clock to 1 o'clock, the wheel gets almost back to 12 o'clock so that the chalk mark is now at 11 o'clock before the camera takes the next picture. Now it looks like the wheel hasn't gone forward, it looks like it's gone backwards. And as the wheel goes a bit faster, then it could go round not to 11 o'clock the first time, but round almost again another full revolution, but get to 10 o'clock that time, so it looks like it's gone backwards a bit more. So it's as the wheel speeds up and the number of pictures you're getting every second stays the same, because you're seeing these snapshots, you get this stroboscopic effect and it looks like the wheel initially speeds up, then appears to go backwards and then appears to be going so fast you can't possibly see where it's going. And, and it's the same with your car on the road at night. Brilliant stuff. Linda in Cape Town, good morning. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning, CBS, and good morning, morning. Chris. Um, I bought a new car about a year ago, <clears throat> and I've been having a lot of problems with static electricity. So when I swing my legs around to get out the car, um, and it, I must admit it was a lot worse in winter, um, I I'm actually, when I step out the car, even if I don't touch the rim of the car or metallic part, the, the shock actually jumps, the, the that electricity actually jumps and gives me a shock. I sort of get a little bit paranoid about getting in and out of the car. <laughs> and, uh, and so I just wondered, um, what, why would it seem to be worse for me than other people? And secondly, what can I do about it? Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's common. And um, it's not your electrifying personality, Linda, that's doing this. That's, okay, that's, well, that's a given. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what is happening? You are doing with your car the equivalent of rubbing a balloon on your head, like you did when you were little, when you're driving along, because the outside of the car is rubbing on the air molecules in the atmosphere, and they are imparting a static charge to your car. Because the car is isolated and insulated from the ground, because it has rubber tyres and rubber is an insulator, once the charge gets onto the car, it takes it a very long time to leak away again, unless you provide it with a convenient place to go by getting out of the car, 
being in contact with the ground and, and at a different charge yourself than the outside of the car when you first get out of it, you touch it, the charge then equilibrates, in other words, tries to equalise between you and the car, and that's the crack you get, the snap, which is extremely painful, and, and I'm the same. And it tends to happen more at certain times of the year because what will make it more likely to happen is if you've got nice dry air. And nice dry air is an even better insulator, and so the car can build up a bigger charge. And so you're going to find when the air is colder, it doesn't have as much water in it. The humidity will be lower, therefore it will be drier. Therefore you'll, you'll end up with a bigger charge on your car, which is why you're saying you're seeing more of this in wintertime. Um, there's not a lot you can do about this, really, apart from maybe buy one of those earthing strips that dangles down the back of your car. Or you could... Um, well, I think that's probably the best way, so then it will equilibrate the charge. Or you could wear very big, thick rubber gloves when you get out of the car and not touch the outside of the car, and then you should avoid any, any contact between you and, and the car, so you won't be able to, to, to equilibrate the charge. Tandoza wants to know on Twitter, Chris, from you, does adding salt to water when boiling eggs help make the shell stronger? Or not? Um... I would have thought it wouldn't make an ounce of difference, to be honest. The salt in, in no way is going to really materially affect the outside of the eggshell, which is made of calcium carbonate, and salt is sodium chloride. It won't make much difference, really, in the grand scheme of things, within the tiny amounts that people add to the water that they're boiling the egg. There, th this is claimed. People do say you should do this. I'm, I'm not really aware of, of a chemical reason why the amounts we put in, it would affect things. Um, there is a modest effect of adding salt to water, which is that because you are adding a solute, you're adding something which dissolves in the water, anything added to a solvent will increase the boiling point and reduce the melting temperature a bit. So therefore the water will boil at a slightly higher temperature, but a very, very tiny increase for the amount of salt you've added. And that too I don't think is going to make a very big difference to your egg. The only difference is going to be one possibly of flavour if the egg goes bang, and you still eat it. Sure. Let's go to Brian. So good morning, Peter. Welcome to the show. Morning, morning. <clears throat> um, I was always wondering, if you take an ant, small ant, and you move it 100 meters away and you put it down, will it join another colony? Will it die, which you perhaps know? Have you tried this at home, Peter? <laughs> I did once, and I couldn't find it again. <laughs> oh, there's a surprise. <laughs> I should have perhaps picked a bigger ant, like this big one, and marked it with a with a with a cokey or something. Chris, well, you know, biologists do do these sorts of experiments, and the way they do it is that they actually paint a bit of nail varnish onto the back of the ant or yellow paint or something to make them visible. Yes. Um, so people do do this. It's very important studies to do. The answer is it depends. If you have got ants which you add to a rival colony, which are in no way genetically similar or even in species terms similar to the ant that you have transplanted, all ants have a, a particular unique sort of cocktail of chemicals, these volatile chemicals, on their surfaces. And they have these cutaneous volatiles, they're called. And when ants interact with each other, when they meet, they brush their antennae against each other. And the antennae of ants are covered in receptors, chemical docking stations for scent molecules. And so when ants bump into each other, they brush their antennae and they smell each other. And they can tell, you are a friend or you are not a friend. And sometimes being not a friend means you've got a virus or you're infected with a fungus and we have to kill you and get rid of you so you don't infect the colony. But very often it will be, you are from a rival colony 
you are not part of our collective and you'll be chased off or bitten and killed. So there's a high likelihood your ant would be recognised as foreign and chucked out. On the other hand, there are super colonies of, of these ants. Ants are social insects and they slowly spread out and form bigger and bigger colonies, many of which can enmesh and work together if they're all clonal. In other words, they all come from a common original source. So they, they do actually, although they're independent little sub-colonies, they do exchange workers occasionally and that kind of thing. So it's possible if you transplanted your ant to a bunch of ants that's very closely related to the uh, colony from which the ant came, it might be accepted. Fascinating stuff, 21 minutes after 10. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Estelle, thank you for your patience. You know, everyone wants to ask Chris a question. You have the next chance. Hello, Estelle. Thank you. Hi, hi, Eusebius. Um, my question is, I've been, uh, for the Naked Scientist, I've been diagnosed with transverse myelitis. And I'd like to find out how much, and I've been on antibody suppressants for six years now. I'd like to know how much longer can I be on it and the effect it will have um, on my body. Hello, I'm sorry to hear about your problems. Well, first of all, what's transverse myelitis? Well, transverse myelitis, transverse means across, and myelitis means inflammation of the spinal cord. And this means you have inflammation across one part of the spinal cord. And if one does a, a scan, usually an MRI scan, because they're good at spotting water and inflamed areas have more water, so they, they flash up on an MRI, you see a level of the spinal cord is, is whiter than it should be, showing that it's inflamed. And uh, in some MRI scans anyway. And the effect of that is to interrupt the flow of information both up and down the spinal cord through the damaged area. It's a bit like if there was a hold-up on the road, then that bottleneck would affect the traffic flow both into town and coming out of town. And this obviously has problems with people being able to move properly or feel things properly below the level at which that damage has occurred. There's a whole range of reasons why people get transverse myelitis. They can be caused by viruses. Polio is a classic example. It's very uncommon these days, thankfully, and we're within a hair's width of getting rid of polio forever from the entire world, which is really good news. But there are also viruses like polio that can do this, and then there are inflammatory reasons why this can happen. So there's a whole raft of reasons, and the treatment will be dictated by what the cause is and therefore the treatment that's meted out to certain diseases will be quite different to the ones that, that are meted out for other diseases. In some cases, it's completely self-limiting and it will go away. In other cases, it needs active management. It sounds to me like you have an autoimmune or some kind of inflammatory transverse myelitis. Yes, I have been diagnosed with autoimmune. That's right. And what is happening there is that the immune system, for reasons best known to it, has decided to attack this region of the central nervous system. And we don't thoroughly understand why these inflammatory conditions go for just specific and limited parts of the nervous system, but they tend to mount this relentless and repeated attack in, on certain parts of the nervous system and damage a specific target. And very often it's the myelin, the chemical that surrounds nerve cells and insulates them. Um, therefore, disease-modifying therapy, ways of stopping the disease or reversing some of the diseases, include damping down the immune response. This can be done in a number of different ways, and not all of these ways are ideal for patients. Some work better in some patients than others, and usually patients will follow a certain treatment protocol of escalating intensity until the, the doctor can get control of the condition. Um, but 
if you're having antibody therapy, what that means is that the doctors have gone to the general population, they've got antibodies from the bloodstream of normal healthy people, you concentrate those antibodies into um, a solution which is then injected into a person, this is called human normal immunoglobulin, and it is in no way harmful to you, and in fact it can help to damp down certain inflammatory diseases of the nervous system. There are others. There's one called chronic inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy, CIDP, incredibly long name. Um, but that also responds in some patients quite well to, to this antibody therapy. We don't know exactly how it works. Great stuff. Chris in Randburg, good morning. Good morning, other Chris. Chris here. Chris, uh, um, I always understood that absolute zero was the point at which all motion in uh, all atomic motion in an object stopped and it was the lowest temperature that could be reached but because of physical condition considerations it could never actually be reached and I gather MIT got within a billionth of a degree of it but I read the other day that now these same MIT guys have apparently cooled some substance, and I can't remember its name, to below absolute zero. How can one go below absolute zero? Mm, good question indeed. Uh, have you got the reference for that by any chance? Because I'd like to read it because um, um, I was of the same school of thought of you, which is that when you extract all the energy from things, then A, matter behaves in a very unusual way. Sure. And it should also get to the point where, as you say, all atomic motion, all vibrations stop. And it is, as far as we know, impossible to get there because mm -hmm. if you got there, then... Um, it would, you, you, would, it, you can never remove all the energy from something because some would always leak back. Well, um, yeah. I can only think that what, they, that what the argument is that you end up creating potential negatives where there, there is an area where you have the potential to descend below absolute zero, but I can't, okay. I'm not aware of any publications, so if you've got the reference, okay. I'll, I'll certainly right, give it a look. I get the, the daily MIT bulletin, and it was in one of those. I'll have to go dig it out if I can still find it, and as and when I do, uh, where do I send it to? Well, if you could email chris at thenakedscientist.com, I will gladly take a look and then we can report back when I've had a chance to get my head round it. Chris at thenakedscientist.com. Beautiful uh, stuff. Thanks, other Chris. Let's squeeze in one or two more. Peluso in Orange Grove, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Hi, Chris. I need to Hello. ask regarding, hi, Chris, uh, regarding uh, birds or pigeons. When they landed, uh, they... Uh, they look very restless and they keep scratching themselves. But when they fly, they can fly for a very long time without them scratching themselves. Is this mind over matter or do they really uh, itch? <laughs> I don't know. I've never asked a pigeon if it itches. But, but, but usually lots of these birds are riddled with parasites and lice. If you actually uh, get, capture, capture one of them, and, and you know people who do bird studies and things, if you just look in the plumage, you'll see that they do have a lot of lice and um, other things and parasites on them, and they groom themselves in order to remove those. They also bath in dust and water in order to dislodge these parasites. So when they have the chance, they tend to spend that time grooming because that helps them to stay healthy because these things are obviously uh, debilitating if you have too many of them. 
So I think re the reason is that it's practical. It's not practical when you're flying along at very high speed relative to the ground and there might be things to fly into and other, other things that will come and get you, eat you or buildings to smash into or other birds to hit. You want to keep your eye on where you're going. When you're on the ground, it's much easier to uh, do a grooming behaviour. So I think it's, it comes down to practicality, really. But it's a good observation. I hadn't really thought about it. Thank you. A final question, one from Twitter. Ratlu wants to know, Chris, what's the difference between human beings and other animals in terms of eating raw meat and drinking dirty water? Why do people get sick and other animals don't? The simple answer to this is that we live far too healthier, hygienic a life these days. And other animals, by necessity, have had to develop a much greater degree of resilience than we have. Because we had a big brain, we have substituted a big brain and skills in order to make life comfortable for ourselves, and we've traded that sort of brute force immunological resilience mm. for the comfortable life and the big brain. Um, other animals like rats have an incredible immune system. They cannot be infected with anything. It's really, really difficult to, to, to get rats to die, <laughs> die of infections and things. As anyone who's ever tried to, to kill off a rat with rat poison and things knows, they're very, very quick to adapt and adjust, and, and they're very resilient animals. And so that, that's the trade-off, that we, we got fire, we started to cook food, we've got big brains, we substitute a big brain for, um, you know, we, we, we make up for the fact that we're deficient in other ways these days by having the ability to outwit the pathogens that are trying to kill us. Then an SMS comment. You don't have to respond to this one. You can just blush. Garabo says, I'm so obsessed, Eusebius, with a naked scientist. Knowing stuff is so sexy. And that voice in there between bracket, she says, swoon, which is defined by the dictionary as fainting, especially from extreme emotion. Chris, you're a health risk. Well, I'm glad we got the medical <laughs> definition in there. That's a really good way to finish the show. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. We'll do it again next week. Have, right, a, have wonderful a good week. week hey? Bye, Eusebius. Cheers. Take care. Bye-bye. It is half past ten. And Regan Thor standing by is the latest in EWN headlines. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.